how different ones of us come to a relationship with God, put, put God first place, and uh, giving Him our lives, and uh, super encouraging to hear those stories. We're in the middle of a, a series titled Not So Inconsequential, basically just the, the minor prophets. And uh, so, starting with Hosea, we're going to say the books of the Bible out loud together. We're getting them pretty well memorized, uh, and so we're going to start with Hosea, right? All right. Hosea, Joel, Amos, say with me, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We're on the second part of Micah, and uh, so if you want to turn it, start working on getting to, uh, getting to Micah in your Bible. Micah is a fairly small book. And um, so as you uh, leaf through the, the pages and, and find Micah, uh, we're going to start in Micah um, chapter 6 today. Last week we focused kind of on the first part of Micah. Um, this week we're going to uh, focus on the, up the last part. <clears throat> in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate but equally important groups. The police who investigate the crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Does anybody recognize that? Glad you did. Made made sense. Micah chapter 6, if you start reading in verse 1 with me, you can see that God is sort of setting up a court case. He's, asked, he's got accusations against his people. And we've entitled this message case number 0693 BC. God versus his people. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. You're not going to see very many passages of scripture on the screen today. Because I want you to just leave your Bibles open to Micah. We're going to go verse by verse kind of piece by piece through uh, these next few chapters. So leave your Bibles open to Micah, and we're just going to roll right through that. So follow with me along uh, Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Look at what it says. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel, right? Case number 0693, God versus his people. Court is now in session. The lens of scripture wants you to go there. It wants you to walk up the marble steps. It wants you to walk between the the pillars of justice. It wants you to go through the security checkpoint to make sure that you're not carrying any weapons into the courtroom. It wants you to head into the courtroom, God Versus his people. He wants you to be privileged enough to go through that little swinging gate. You know what I'm t- t- that gate I'm talking about? That little swinging gate there at the front of the courtroom. He wants you to walk through that swinging gate and stand between the prosecution and the defense. Let's see, is it the opposite way around? Usually prosecution on this side, defense on this side. He wants you to stand there before the judge and hear this case. We're going to look at this case as through a law and order style. I read you the first two verses. God wants us to treat this like a very real court case. Sit in the chambers of justice and watch this case unfold. Micah chapter 6. 
Look at verse 3. God starts to lay out his case. The prosecution starts to lay out its case. Verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. He's not a God who shows up and says, how dare you? He's not a God who says, do you have a clue who I am? He shows up from sort of an unexpected place. And he says, can, can someone please tell me what have I done to you? He continues on, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to, to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of God. When there's a solid case against you, God had a solid case. If you ever want to check out a real relationship with God, if you ever want to enter in and stand before Him, you're going to wonder, what, what, is, what does He have on me? Trust me, He has a solid case against each and every one of us. If you ever find yourself in the halls of justice, standing before the Creator, and ultimately the judge, realize He has a solid case against you. Secondly, we have forgotten our salvation. He tries to mention that that these people have forgotten their salvation, their freedom. Where did He get it? Where did they get it from? How did they get to where they are? God's saying, don't forget where you came from. Everything you have is because of me. The freedom you have is from me. He's trying to remind the people of Egypt in the escape from bondage. Today he's there to remind us what he did for us on the cross. He says, never get too far from Egypt. Israelites, Christians, never get too far from the cross. He's trying to help us remember the sacrifice that he made. Here's how it might work. It worked this way for me. You come across this, this God and, and, and you find out that he's willing to redeem you. He wants to give you freedom from the nastiness of sin. A God that wants to walk with you. A God that wants to bless you. And it turns out great. But then real life starts to happen. You start running into some tough times. The Christian life gets hard. You start making some of your own choices. And it's not long until that moment of freedom that you once had, that moment of freedom in Christ that you once claimed, seems very distant. It's not quite so close anymore. And we begin to take on this feeling of entitlement. This is what what God is supposed to do for me. And we start to wonder why he isn't doing what he promised. We even doubt him altogether. That's what he brings to the courtroom. Have you forgotten your salvation? Have you forgotten the freedom? Have you forgotten the verdict that was on your life? Have you forgotten what I've allowed you to have? Like any good prosecutor, he begins to weave the case. Third that he brings up, and he's like, you know, don't blame me for your own mistakes. Don't blame God for what you've done. You have problems in your life, but you're, you're blaming me. Really, they're your issues. He brings up Balak and Balaam. Do you remember the story? 
Write down in your notes Numbers chapter 23 through chapter 25. We're not going to read three chapters in the Old Testament, and especially not out of Numbers. This is a fabulous story, though. And, and we see King Balak trying to get... King Balak was uh, an opposing king. He was trying to get Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. Israel was down in the valley. They wanted to come through his land. And King Balak brought... Balak brought Balaam up on this high mountaintop and said, look at all these Israelites. I want you to curse them. And Balaam comes to the edge of the, edge of the cliff and Balak's back there saying, if you curse them, I'm going to pay you good. I'm going to pay you well. Balaam comes to the end edge of the cliff and he stretches out his arms to curse him and all he can do is bless them. Oh, the land of Israel, I bless you. Balak's like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Uh, you're supposed to curse them. And he goes back and tries to do other things. He brings them back there. Four times this happens. Balak's like, come on, man. I need you to curse the people of Israel. Balak comes out and he says, I bless you. Balaam being a smart guy and full of fear gathers hundreds and the reason is because Balaam tells Balak that these people are not going to be cursed by God. They're going to be blessed by God because they're obeying God. I can't curse them. God's never going to disagree with them unless they start to disobey him. So what does Balak do? He gathers hundreds of very well-built men and women. The men have broad shoulders and narrow hips and six-pack abs, just like mine. Just kidding, I don't have six-pack abs. The women he sent were beautiful as well, built well, all the curves in all the right places. And Balak sent these beautiful people into Israel's camp. He sent them in with sexuality and worship. It was a sex and religion type worship. That's what they did. That was part of their religion. The Israelites gladly accepted and took both. Balak got what he wanted. The Israelites began to disobey, and of course, God left them, allowed them to be defeated. And back in the courtroom, God says, I'm not the one that brought you out of slavery and gave you freedom, and now I am the one that brought you out of those things, and now you're blaming me for your problems, for your issues. God is saying, please come to the courtroom and tell me, what have I ever done to wrong my people? And the courtroom gets real quiet. But the defendants have to respond. Micah chapter 6, look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or, or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I bring the firstborn from my transgression, my firstborn of, for my sin, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? If you ever were put in front of the court, in front of an almighty God, How would you defend yourself? The people just say, God, you're just unfair. We can't, we can't possibly please you. We can't possibly win. There's nothing we can do to win. We could bring you 10,000 10, rivers of olive oil and it still wouldn't please you. 
And I sense some sarcasm here. But you know what? I've been there. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you're in that place where it just seems like you can't do anything right? You just can't please anyone, including God? I don't know if I've ever said it aloud, but I've felt it at times. I can't really please an almighty God, so what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Kill my firstborn of my flesh to redeem my soul? Obviously, they're going a little overboard there. But let's get real. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think we have a hard time distinguishing between the voice of God and the voice of our earthly fathers. Many of us have grown up in, in families where we had parents that were, were disapproving. They didn't approve of anything we did. It seemed like we couldn't do it right. Parents who made you feel like you were never good enough. may have been even a lack of an approving voice from your earthly father. For whatever reason, he wasn't there. He wasn't there to say, you are everything I had hoped for in a son or daughter. You may have never got that from your earthly dad. But I'm here to tell you, God is not that way. That's not real God. Real Christianity is the only group in that in order to get in, in order to become a member, you have to be disqualified for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the only group, it's the only membership, it's the only place, it's the only place, only place you're going to feel like you have to be disqualified in order to even get in. You look at Christianity and you throw your arms in the air and you say, I could never do this. I, I am never good enough. I could never be that good. Guess what? That's what qualifies you to get in. That's what makes you, makes it possible for you to be a part. I've seen others walk in and they think they're pretty good Christians. They walk in confidently. They got their big old Bible underneath their arms. They got this down. Sorry to say, I don't think they're in. I think they're out. Multiple times throughout Scripture, Jesus came and he hung out with, we hung out with pimps and the drug dealers and the addicts. He said, I came to help the ones who are sick. They are the ones that need a doctor. And he said to the religious, if you don't think you're sick, then you won't be having any of this. You won't be having any of this sacrifice. You won't even be having any of this Jesus Christ Because the saving grace isn't necessary if you've already got it figured out. Micah paints the picture perfectly. People are saying, what do you expect us to do? How do we please you? And Micah answers the question in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He says, he's already shown you. He's shown you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To ask, ask, act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's really not that hard. He doesn't want a river of olive oil. He doesn't want your firstborn. In the courtroom, they realized what God was actually trying to say. Then the prosecution continues. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 9 down through 16. God lays out what 6-8 really looks like. 
Listen to the Lord is calling you, calling to the city. And to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod of the one who, who appointed it. Verse 10. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, the short ephah, which is a, a, a way of measuring, which is a curse? Shall I acquit someone with dis, dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? You rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will stay, will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. God says, this is where you are falling short of 6-8. This is where you're dishonest in business. You're violent. You're liars. Your religion is a sham. This is the reason why many of us today, we feel like we're trying to save, we're trying to get ahead, and we just can't get ahead. We don't sleep well. This is the reason we work so hard and just can't ever feel like we get ahead. Contentment seems to, to always escape us. We can't seem to hold on to anything worthwhile. So where does God go first? He goes to the workplace. And you say, well, wait a second. I keep my religion separate from my work. God doesn't. He has called you to the mission field in your work. Whatever you do for work, wherever you spend many, many, many hours a week, that's where he's called you. He's called you to be there for him. We have electrician missionaries. We have water treatment missionaries. We have teacher missionaries. We have child care missionaries. We even have some tree trimming missionaries. We have waiter and waitress missionaries doesn't matter what you do God has called you to be his in that we need to be honest in business whatever you do God's called you right where you are he wants you to show his character through you wherever you are you represent God to the world around you he goes to the marketplace and next he says you're violent what's he talking about here do you really think that we're violent, physically violent? Maybe, maybe he's going into our homes. Maybe he's going into our relationships. You know, he's loaned many of us one of his own children. He's allowed you to be with one of his own. How are you treating your spouse? Is your, re- your relationship em- emotionally violent? If you have kids, he's given you a few extras. Some of his his children to be with for a while. How are you treating his little ones? Do you push them aside to gain your own will? Do you force them to serve your own agenda? God has put his children under your care to protect and provide for them. For you to build them up in his character. The very people I have put in your life to love and protect have to walk around you on eggshells because they fear the next time you're going to go off on them due to your own selfishness. 
God says, that's my daughter. I gave you to love and respect. And I've heard what you call her. And I've seen how you treat her. God says, that's my son. I gave you to uphold and honor. I've seen the way you tear him down. I've seen the way you belittle him. God says, those are my children. I've given you to show them love, mercy, and grace in your home. To model it after me. seen how you hold things against them as if those little ones knew better you take out your frustrations on them God says I have an issue with that courtroom gets real quiet again you're dishonest in business, you're violent, you're liars your religion is a sham this is the case he brings against his people and he says can someone please tell me what have I done to deserve this I came to bring freedom to save you to bless you so the defense has to respond look at chapter 7 starting in verse 1 people are starting to get it now they're starting to understand it. verse 1 there chapter 7 what misery is mine I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard there is no cluster of grapes to eat none of the early figs that I crave the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best, best of them is like a briar. The, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now, this is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard your words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises against his mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I guess you can see that one coming. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. The defendants say, don't blame us. Our government, neighborhoods, our homes are all messed up. We're there. Right? Have you seen the headlines lately? You watch the news? They found out it was a, a young person who took the life of that 10-year-old girl that was lost this week. I just saw it in the news today. This morning, I got a... Uh, an update. They arrested a young person, a teen, who has taken the life of a 10 year old. The government's messed up. The justice system is a disaster. Some of us can't even trust our spouse. There's no safety anywhere. We're looking for a place of comfort in everything, and we just can't find it. Come home from work, walk through the door each night, trying to hope and to find peace and acceptance. And all we find is evil and injustice, even in our own homes. Most don't come with one problem. They come with many. There's issues compounding on top of issues. My work is a mess. I'm dealing with the system. The schools are messed up. My home's a disaster. I just don't know where to turn. 
You may be pretending that you're not there. You may pull it together on Sunday morning and put on your Sunday best and and come and pretend that everything's okay. But I don't think, I don't think we all are. The legal system, the finances, the family, it's all just messy. And that's what the people were were saying back here. And that's what, what Micah wrote. The defendants go there. They don't know where to even start. How do we put it all together? Defendants don't have a case, but they're, they're just throwing up their hands because everything is such a mess. But I love this place. I love this place where we can throw our hands in the air and say, God, I'm messed up. I can't see light at the end of the tunnel. The only light I do see is an oncoming train. This is a place, we sang about it this morning, a place of surrender. Completely brokenness, despair, is often a tool of God that he uses in amazing ways. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says it this way. He says, we, we can become content in our own sins and in our stupidities. We can live there quite well. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain... Real pain insists on being noticed and attended to. You see, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience and in our convictions. But God shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. God's trying to get our attention. He's trying to get us to say, I'm... I'm done with me. God, I'm finished with me. I need you. The prosecution and the defense rests, and the verdict comes down. It comes down in two parts. Marcus, Mike, uh, Micah starts this verdict, and he says, look at verse 7. He says, but as for me, I love it when leaders will start with, but as for me. Remember when Joshua said it? He said, but as for me, he includes him in on what's going on. Micah finds himself in this place and makes this statement. I don't know, I don't know what you all are going to do, but here's what I'm going to do. Verse 7, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. I love how Micah doesn't flee this case. He allows himself to be a part of it. This first part of the verdict comes down. He says, says, start with, with personal commitment. That's where it needs to start. Regardless of how bad the mess is, start with personal commitment. No matter where you are, no matter how bad things have gotten, your next step is obedience. I've heard so many stories, gotten into so many messes with so many people. They lay out their story and their dilemmas. They're asking for advice. They're asking for help. they, They want to hear from God about what they should do in their life. Tell them and say, you know what, I've got, I've got this figured out. I think I can help you. They look up from their despair 
as if I'm speaking right from God, which I kind of am. And I simply say, your next step, your next step is obedience. Most often they'll drop their head and let out a deep sigh. They say, bummer. I thought you were going to tell me something specific that I could do to fix my life. I say, I am. The only thing that's keeping God from saving you, from giving you freedom, from blessing you like he wants to, is your obedience. I don't know exactly where you are today, but Micah's saying here, here's where I'm going to start. Micah gives a whole bunch of verses about what God's going to do. Then he ends it with verse 18. This is how Micah knows that God is going to handle his case. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Look at it with me. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression, the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Highlight, underline, circle. That's what you need to remember about a heavenly God. He delights to show mercy. The greatest thing about this prosecutor is that he's also the judge. What? That sounds a little unfair. Yes, in God's court, it's incredibly unfair. Because not only is he the prosecuting attorney, but he's also the judge. And what's unfair about it is because God is a God who delights in mercy. If not, you know what? There would be just a bunch of dust piles out there where you're sitting and a big, huge dust pile up here where I'm standing trying to teach out of a dust pile. Because God would have just, just snuffed us a long time ago if it wasn't for his mercy. <coughs> Micah 7, look at verse 19. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you have pledged on oath to our ancestors in the days long ago. The second part of this verdict is the judge delights in mercy and grace. He loves to forgive us. It is one of the most unfair court proceedings you have ever witnessed in your life. He's not the judge who hears the case and says, you know, I've, uh, I've given you three chances on this particular one already, and uh, I just don't know about this. He opens up his book, and he looks at, at my sin, and he said, Lloyd, this is the 18,432nd time you've asked me forgiveness for the exact same sin. What? Who, I don't even know what to do anymore. I know. I know. Why are you even here? Because I know you're a God who loves to forgive. He delights in mercy. God says, you know, you're right. I do. Not because you deserve it. But because you're my boy. Because you're mine. You're my daughter. You're my son. If you're going to be my boy, I want you to have my same character. My DNA. And that's what he asks us to obey. He says, go out from here. Man, if there's anything that I can give to my kids, it's that. The heart of love for other people. God cares enough to love us, to show mercy to us, 
that's where we need to share with others. Because of grace, because of mercy, he's done an incredibly unfair thing for us. So we can do the same in our homes, in our place of business, in our lives. So what does the judge require from us? He's going to pardon us. He's going to give us mercy. But what does he require? Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. Turn back to Micah 6 and verse 8. Four things here. I know it only looks like there's three, but I'm going to throw a third one in there. Number one, justice. To use our power in a fair and just way. Do you have power? Yeah, you do. If you have the benefit of providing food, clothing, and shelter for your family today, you're a powerful person. You're a minority. Uh, I don't have that much. I just don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm very powerful. You are. There's a lot of resource in what you have in your possession, in your ability. You have an amazing way. You have an amazing resource to help others. Be just about it. Use your power in a fair and just way. God wants you to bring justice to everything you touch. Secondly, mercy. Love to be loving, especially to the hard to love. I'm not going to define that for you. Because some of us may think that that person that's really difficult to love is sitting right next to you. But it may be the ISIS bomber who just blew up an entire orphanage full of children. doesn't matter. You know, I think we have a tendency to pick who we want to be loving to and who we think isn't good enough. Who have you loved this week that was truly hard to love? Who have you shown love to this week that... God, the judge that's asking you, requiring of you to, to love mercy, would view as real love. Because loving each other, loving the people who love us back, is, is not real love. It's loving those ones that are difficult to love. Who have you loved this week that's really difficult to love? I know some of you are thinking about your brother or thinking about your sister in the same row you're sitting in. Maybe. Sometimes they're hard to love. Most of the time we just make an excuse. So, How do you love mercy? We need to go back to see what God has done for us and then show that same mercy to those who have wronged us. What? We have to show mercy to people who have wronged us? You don't understand, preacher. You don't understand what this person has done to me. I have a real case against this person. Who cares? God Almighty has a real case against you. And what did he do about it? Well, preacher, it could cost a lot to show them mercy and love and help them. Yeah, it's going to cost. Don't talk to God about how much it costs. It cost him his son. Don't talk to God about how they have treated you. Realize God gave mercy at a great cost. They didn't tra- treat him right. The judge is asking you for, for you to really follow. That's what he requires. Number three, I know it's not, it's not one of the three in Micah, but I want you to focus in on one word. It says to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk. I see real faithfulness 
in this term walk. A consistent, unwavering, firm belief. That's what the judge is requiring of us. This is a consistent, unwavering, firm belief. It's a trust in God that is admirable. There's very little commitment in this world. And this, this, this world is lacking trust. God wants us to trust Him. And He wants us to walk consistently with Him. Oh, I got a little love out on Tuesday and I did something to show a little mercy on Wednesday. I'm just hoping that some, somehow, some way, I'll be able to show a little humility sometime before Sunday. Now, it's not a checklist. It's not something we're checking off as we go through our week. It's a way of life. It's something we do all the time, day in and day out. Take a stand and offer up a commitment to an almighty God. Let's do this. Carbon for about a week was stuck on, on this kick. He catches little phrases from probably some from his brother, some from his sisters, maybe some from me. He says, he says, oh yeah. I don't even say it right. Colton always says it. Oh yeah. And Corbin will come around. Oh yeah. And recently Colton started with this this whole thing delicious. Everything's delicious. I don't care. You can find a pile of poop and he's like, God, delicious. And Colton, I mean Corbin, two-year-old Corbin has picked it up and he's walking around, delicious. The other day he picked one up and I'm not sure which one he got it from. But he, kept, he kept saying, let's do this. I go, all right, go, let's go, let's go get your socks and shoes on. We got to get go. We got ready to go. Let's do this. Say. <laughs> let's do this. It was a stupid, silly thing. Well, let's get some breakfast out. All right, sign me breakfast. Let's do this. I love it. It's good stuff. The judge requires consistent walk with him. And number four, humility. Humility. I define humility as a proper view of self. We kind of worked through it in our discussion groups earlier. Humility is not a poor self-image. It's not, it's not about being quiet. You know, and we often think, oh, loud people, those people are arrogant. No, not necessarily. Oftentimes the places where we succeed are the places where we'll have a tendency to struggle with humility. Understand what you deserve and then have a true appreciation for what God has given Case number 0693 BC, God versus his people. Case closed. I didn't bring my little gavel. God, may we understand the case you have against us is solid. And help us appreciate your love, your mercy, your grace to the point we can share it with all those around us. May we realize what we deserve and what we are giving isn't fair. Or what we are given, rather, isn't fair. It's extremely unfair to our benefit. May we grasp this idea of surrender. Help us start from whatever mess we're in and start being obedient to you. Baby steps in your direction. Give us the courage to take the baby steps of obedience. May we also realize the requirements for us to be one of yours is very simple. To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us Micah to stand up for what's right, to provide us with a, with a format of, of this case. 
God, we know that you've got a case against us. We know that we could never live up to what we're supposed to be. But God, we know also that you love mercy and you love to forgive us. And God, help us to feel comfortable in there, that spot. Help us to walk in that place. God, help us to not feel like we deserve that. But God, we deserve something far worse. But because we've been given that, God, help us to be able to dish that back out. And show mercy to those around us. God, thank you for for Micah and what he had to say to us today. Please bless us now. As we begin to take baby steps in obedience to you. God, pray that you will keep Satan away from us. So that we can take these baby steps of obedience. And become more like you want us to be. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.